good to see everyone and um, also to be seen by you. And it's a wonderful privilege to be able to declare today that Christ is risen. And the response is, he... All right, so if you're not familiar with that, there is a, a, a very old church tradition when um, the declaration is made from the front, Christ is risen, that there would be a response, he is risen indeed. And so if you f- feel comfortable declaring that response, because it's true, a conviction of yours, then respond, I ask you, in, uh, as I state again, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Amen. He is risen indeed. And so as we gather here on what we know as Easter Sunday, um, it's a wonderful thing to be able to reflect on and rejoice over the the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, If you're joining us um, for the first time, maybe visiting us, um, welcome. And um, we've been exploring this a little prior. So on the, the... first Sunday of what they call Holy Week, which would have been last Sunday, we started a a mini-series, Fake News or Fact, Um, considering the the reality that there is much fake news that is spread around and alternative facts um, that is spread around today. Um, And it's been very topical in our social media and um, through our news streams and so on. And very often people treat the truth of Christ's resurrection as if it were fake news. And so we're saying, okay, let's put that to the test. Let's examine that claim. Can it be truly said that this claim of Christ's resurrection is fake news, or is it that hashtag fact? The fact that trumps all other facts. The fact that changes everything. You see, there is no middle ground as it relates to Jesus Christ. He himself said, you're either for me or against me. There's no gray area. There's no fence to sit on. It's one side of the line or the other. And very often, people refuse to make a commitment. Ah, well, uh, you know, I'm not so sure. You know, all this talk about Easter and you know, that's a pagan festival. So how am I supposed to, to take this whole talk? And mm, Well, and that indecisiveness is a decision in and of itself. C.S. Lewis was a, a great um, professor and British writer. And he said, there is sufficient evidence to convince anyone who is willing to believe. The reality is that most people who are indifferent or even opposed have most often not actually examined the evidence. And so we've been considering the evidence. We've been um, looking at a book or looking at insights from a book that's available for £3. um, And it's called Your Verdict on the Empty Tomb. And it's... I wonder if I can grab one. Thank you, Karen. You can see it's a small book. Not no heavy reading. It's, It's a light read, light work. But it's very clear and very convicting and even convincing in the, the, the case that is put forward. It is written by a man called Val Grieve, who was a lawyer and barrister and, and an atheist. 
when he first started on his quest to examine the evidence. And his desire was really to, to, to try and um, counter, could this really be true? I don't think so. And so he came at it from an atheist point of view. And yet his life was transformed as he wrestled with the evidence of Christ. And so I do commend this book to you. Um, it's very accessible, um, very clear, and it would be interesting to see your response, what your verdict would be as you read this. Even for a Christian, I would encourage you to read this because it is such that it will strengthen you in your faith and in your convictions, I'm sure. Amen. And so, Christ is risen. <laughs> yeah! Praise be to God. Have some believers in the building. Listen. Christ is risen. Amen. And this is the thing. A response is required. We get that now. It doesn't have to be, you know, every time I say Christ is risen. <laughs> But a response is required. Say something. There's no dilly-dallying. Say something. He is or he isn't. And if he is, what does that mean? What does that mean to you? What does that mean to the world? Father God, we thank you because you are faithful to show yourself strong. You are faithful to be true to yourself. Your word says we are to let you be true and every man a liar. Who can we trust? We can't even trust ourselves, Lord. We make commitments that we don't keep. We make pledges we don't follow through. We make promises that we break, even to ourselves. And yet, Lord God, you are true and everyone to be counted a liar. And you have revealed yourself in an irrefutable, indelible fashion. And so we ask that you would give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, give us hearts to receive what you would say to us today, encouraging us in the truth of Jesus Christ, our Savior, the risen Son of God. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As Christians, we must be prepared to contend. We must be prepared to contend. In this climate and culture of fake news, alternative facts, if you're somebody who has put your faith in Christ, you must be prepared to contend for that faith. Jude Verse 3 is only one chapter. said, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. What is Jude's appeal in the verse? That we contend. That we contend for the faith. Now, this is ultra important because people's eternal destiny depend on it. 
This is a life and death scenario. For us to claim that Jesus came back from the dead suggests that there is one who has conquered man's greatest enemy. Conquered humanity's deepest fear. I'm sure that we've been to enough funerals. We've known of people who have passed away. We may have known people who have passed away, who have died. Enough to know that there is no coming back. There is no coming back. And yet God has given an answer. 1 Peter 3.15 But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Jesus is the Lord. And there is no one or nothing like him. He's incomparable. He is pure, just, loving, kind. But he's also the judge. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. And so it's important that we consider the reasons to believe and that we do so with an intention to say something. With an intention to say something. Because we know that when it comes to the opponents of Christ, the opponents of the gospel, they are ready to say something. I think about my own personal struggle. My own personal struggle just kind of dealing with this whole notion of Easter. Not the facts concerning Christ. By God's grace, there hasn't been a time in my life and in my relationship with God where I've actually um, been so uncertain or doubted the truth of God's word and the truth of Christ that I've, I've had a crisis of faith. God has been good in keeping me. That's not because of anything in myself other than God's grace keeping me. I've, I've not had that kind of experience where I've kind of been ready to walk away from Christianity. Part of the reason is because the things that we're looking at today and we've been looking at over the last few days, um, Good Friday and last Sunday, these things have been established in my life as a Christian early, early. And I've formed the solid foundation that my faith has been built upon. But there was a time when I kind of wrestled with this notion of Easter because, as many have said, it's something that is said to have come from a pagan festival, Ishtar, and that the name was, was claimed by Christians and as a result, certain pagan practices were also claimed by Christians. And so therefore, that undermines any kind of integrity that this story of Christ, this celebration of his resurrection, his death and his resurrection can actually have. I wonder if there's any of you that have kind of felt that tension a little over the whole issue of Easter. Hmm. Well, what's in the name? What's in the name? Was it Shakespeare who said, is a rose not a rose if called by any other name? 
Sounds good, isn't it? <laughs> Is it a rose? Not a rose. Yeah. But listen, what was the point of that, 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 that you know, poetic statement there? A rose isn't merely defined by its name, but by its character. The smell, the color, you know, the fragrance of the rose, the, the softness of the petals, the, the beauty of the rose is what gives the name meaning, not the other way around. And so we have to appreciate that Despite the fact that there was a point in time when Christians, let's just say, put it plain as it was, were guilty of cultural appropriation. There was a time when they were guilty of cultural appropriation with an intent and a purpose, with a missional agenda. As part of our mission to help the culture understand God, the message of the gospel, who Christ is, we're going to appropriate certain aspects of the culture with a genuine intention of helping people to understand. And so what we have to do is consider not just the name and be swayed by what people say of Easter and how it's Ishtar and so on, but let's look at the content. Let's look at the ingredients. Let's look at the character of what is being communicated and judge that. Because whether you want to consider it Easter, and you know, Easter didn't start with Ishtar. The whole principle of life and death um, as represented and fulfilled in Christ even goes back to the Old Testament. We saw last Sunday how it goes back to Genesis 22. When Abraham was told by God to take his son Isaac up, up the mountain to, to offer him as a sacrifice on the altar. And Abraham in obedience, trusting that God would be true to his word, that God would raise up a son, raise up a people from his only son. He went up there nonetheless and he took the knife and he raised it to kill Isaac. And the angel said, hold on. There's a ram in the bushel. <laughs> Old school, King James Version. Don't watch that. <laughs> It just sounds heavy. There's a ram in the bushel. There's a, there's a ram goat in the thicket, in the bush. And as Abraham looked, he saw the ram in the bush there. And, Ab and the angel said, take the ram and, and kill the ram in place of your son. And in Hebrews, we're told that this expression of faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. He believed God to the point where he was willing to kill his own dream, his own hopes, his own desires. He was willing to put them to death in order to be obedient to God's word because he knew that God would be faithful to raise his very own son from the dead if necessary. And so way back in Genesis, this is even before the Exodus Passover, we see a prefiguring, a preemptive statement concerning the fact that this is what God is going to do. So Christ is risen. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's all right. 
And in many ways, it's all according to the plan and purpose of God. So let's not be blindsided. Let's not be swayed or broadsided when people call into question the name of this festival as we understand it. You know, in 200 years' time, if the Lord hasn't returned yet, which I feel is highly unlikely, but if in 200 years' time, if the Lord hasn't returned yet, Easter may be known by a different name. It hasn't always been known as Easter. And yet, the facts have been and will always be celebrated. Amen? Now, What we've done was we considered seven factors, seven points. As people um, debate fake facts, fake news, we had a look at an article that said, look, here are seven points by which you can assess something to see whether or not it's, it's fake news or not. And we looked at the first three. What is the news outlet? Publish date and time. Look at what links and sources are used. Does the gospel of Christ actually stand up to even modern um, critical methods? Does it stand up to scrutiny? We considered how the news outlet, the, the means by which the good news of Christ has been published is that of the scriptures, the Bible, and the gospels in particular. And we appreciated how the gospels are more reliable and integral of greater quality than any other ancient document. You go back to prior recordings, before the time of audio and video recordings, but it, before the time of photographs, you go back in time. How do we know what happened happened? We're relying on the information being passed on to us in writing. And yet when it comes to ancient writings, the gospels are of great, greater reliability. Then any, if you can't trust the Gospels, you can't trust any ancient writing. One of the things that contributes to that is the fact that the events that are recorded in the Gospels were reported sooner and in greater quantity than any other ancient events. Within the lifetime of those people involved in the events, Actually, the reports were being written and they were able to be challenged and contested and rubbished and thrown out if they weren't true. And so we see that the early date of the publishing of these reports concerning Christ's resurrection and the fact that those reports were duplicated in greater quantity than any other ancient document also confirm the fact that these writings are to be believed beyond reasonable doubt. He said, let's look at what links and sources are used. I mentioned Exodus 22. There's Exodus 14 and the Passover. There's Ezekiel 37. There's Psalm 16, 10 and 11. And a number of other scriptures that have referred to the fact that God would send someone, the Messiah, who would come to save. 
and who would be killed and raised again. And this was prefigured. It was um, alluded to. It was suggested. An example was given ahead of time. And so as we look back, we have the confidence of being able to look back and say, praise be to God. We can see how this incident concerning Jesus was it wasn't just a, you know, a, a last-minute idea. It wasn't an afterthought of God. Ah, oh, Jesus is dead now. What am I going to do? My gosh, it didn't go kind of the way I planned. And so, um, you know what? Maybe I'll just raise him from the dead. Yeah, that's a good idea. That's not how God approached it. It was God's intent from the beginning. <clears throat> we consider now that there are other people who affirm the fact that Jesus lived. Other people who affirm the reports that were given of Jesus. People of the time. And these were people who were not followers of Jesus. These are people who were historians, whether Jewish or pagan historians, who affirm the facts. And so this isn't just news that comes from a, a, a select um, niche group of people with their own ideas that are historically without any kind of basis or founding, without any kind of historic agreement amongst other historic writers. Josephus was a Jewish historian who lived and worked amongst the Romans, whose writings were highly regarded. The Jewish Sanhedrin of the day, there is literature that um, goes back to the fact that they actually wrote concerning Christ and the fact that he was claimed to be the Messiah and that he was followed by some and that he was crucified. Now, the Jewish Sanhedrin were a part of the group that actually put Jesus to death. You had pagan historians, Tacitus, Pliny the Younger, known for their own writings in other ways, highly regarded writings, who comment on Christ. And here are some of the highlights of what they affirm. These non-Christian, non-Christ following writers, historians, they confirm that Jesus lived and was a good man. He was followed by those called Christians, having taken his name. He was called Messiah by some. He was put to death under Pilate. He is reported to have raised from the dead. He was declared alive by those who continue to follow him. Now, they're not saying that this, this is their conviction. They're just giving you a news report. This is what's going on in our life and times. These are the claims that are being made about this man. Some of you may have um, come across um, a, a movie called Zeitgeist. And you know, one of the claims in Zeitgeist was that actually there was really no Jesus character. <laughs> I have a man kisses to you. <laughs> Thank you. You've done it for me. They claimed that there was no Jesus character, that actually the story of Jesus was just a remix of ancient stories. 
And you know, the way this over hour long presentation was presented with lots of visuals and everything was really engaging, caused people to really take it in. In some ways, it kind of really was the forerunner to our fake news culture that we have now. Because when you begin to actually break it down and you begin to look at one, the stories that are claimed to have been remixed. So Jesus' story was just aspects of older stories that were taken and then they were put together in this character. So there was a person back in the day in Egypt and he had um, 12 followers and he was killed and he was said to have raised. There are no such stories. There are no such stories. This is just the claim of an individual. But it was put together in such a convincing fashion that people swallowed it. The notion that there is no historical um, figure called Jesus in the first century is foolishness. One historian, one modern historian who's not even a, a Christian, he said it's ludicrous for someone to suggest that there was no person in the first century called Jesus who had followers. This is an atheist. One of the, one of the foremost contenders against the Christian faith is a guy called Bart Ehrman. And despite all of his contentions against Christianity, even he himself would say, it's nonsense to say that there was no Christ figure in the first century. So when we consider the biographies that are written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when we consider the historical writings of those of the day, we understand that it's actually beyond reasonable doubt that Jesus actually existed. And so then we're left with the task of, okay, so what do we know about him? What do we know about him? Now consider this. Even as it says in our list of checkpoints, how to weed out fake news, it says, Be beware of confirmation and bias. Beware of somebody who's biased to confirm the, the, the claim because it will benefit them or they stand something to gain from it. We understand that these writers had nothing to gain they had no benefit to gain by supporting, by reporting these claims. None whatsoever. In fact, when you consider the, li the life of first century Christians, you will understand that actually it was a hazardous thing because first century Christians were killed for their testimony. And so when we consider the authors of these writings, we understand that the people who authored the primary testimonies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as they recorded the events and as they took testimony from eyewitnesses, they were recording the evidence of those who followed Christ, those who became known as Christians. Jesus is the founder of Christianity. A belief which springs from Judaism, but is different. It was opposed by the Jews. 
It was opposed by the Romans who claimed that Caesar was God. So how are you going to come tell me about another God? As a, I'm a Roman man and you're going to tell me about another God. We declare Caesar is God. He is divine. And yet those who followed Christ done so at the cost of their lives. Those who held to the claim that Jesus is the Lord, the Son of God, crucified and raised for the sins of the world, they signed their testimony in their blood. Emperor Nero, and he kind of, the period of the book of Acts in the Bible, he kind of begins to feature there. Emperor Nero was said to have been somewhat of a crazy emperor who was very um, self-deluded, really was just in love with himself, very narcissistic. And he was someone who basically took opportunity to persecute and kill Christians just as a means of, of glorifying himself. And it was said that Nero's streets would be, would be lit. Now, I don't mean that in the, in the way that it's used culturally today. <laughs> Nero's streets would be lit up by the, the torches made of burning Christians. They would tie Christians to posts, cover them in in pitch, and they would set them on fire. And and they would line the streets with Christians. And this was a common occurrence. You seen the film Gladiator? And Maximus Aurelius, he's in the in the in the ring. Um, amongst the gladiators, thrown to the lions, getting run over by chariots, fighting off. Christians were regularly, commonly, and consistently thrown to the lions. Simply for declaring their faith in Christ. This was the plight of somebody who took upon themselves Jesus' name. It's a bit like those who are martyred today in Middle Eastern countries or in places like China. And so if there's really going to be a test of what someone genuinely believes, you would, you would suggest that that's the ultimate test, right? This also adds to the strength of the claim. Now, we see here in 1 Corinthians 15 what is regarded as one of the earliest Christian creeds. And so, throughout the history of the church, even from the time of the New Testament, there would be statements that are used to help um, embody, in summary form, what is believed by Christians. And when a person declared themselves to be a Christian, they would hold their hand up, um, metaphorically speaking, agreeing to and subscribing to the creed. This is seen to be the earliest creed. uh, And another um, that follows this is known as the Apostles' Creed, 
which contains the, the same fundamental elements with a little bit of elaboration. And in every Christian creed for the past 2,000 years, these facts have been consistent from the beginning. There was no point at which they added information about the resurrection or Christ's death because it was convenient to at that point. This has always been the claim of Christianity from the beginning. This is the Apostle Paul stating this. And he regards himself as one who was born out of due season. So the other apostles walked with Christ. They ate with Christ. They talked with Christ. They were taught by him. They watched him perform miracles. They saw him crucified. They saw him raised from the dead. They went out as special messengers. During this time, the apostle Paul was a Jew of Jews. His name wasn't Paul then. It was Saul. And what was he doing? He was who? He was killing Christians. This is a stated historical fact. This man who's now writing this was once a man who was out there killing Christians, certified. In the book of Acts, he says, when he talks about his, his experience of meeting the risen Lord on the road to Damascus, Damascus, he says, I was on my way to Jerusalem to obtain letters giving me the authority to kill Christians wherever I find them. My man wasn't just a Jew. He was a fundamentalist. He was passionate. Listen, he, was, he was an extremist. Thank you, Pastor Rob. He wasn't going to take lightly this, this opposition to his heritage and his belief. And Moses and the prophets and, and the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Paul weren't trying to take that lightly. It's like, how dare these people come and make a counterclaim? Even trying to claim that this is someone from among us. Are you mad? No, I'm going to kill them. <laughs> Certified killer. Christians were his victims, were his targets. And yet he met with the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. And his life was transformed. How do you explain that kind of transformation? A man who was a Jew and proud of it. Who would kill anyone who claimed to follow this Christ. Look at this declaration. For I deliver to you as of first importance... What I also received. See, it didn't even just originate with him. He's acknowledging the fact that this is truth outside of myself. I received this truth. That Christ died for our sins. In accordance with the scriptures. Remember, he was well versed in the scriptures. A good Jew, by the age of 13, would quote the Torah. That's the first five books of the Bible, off by heart, from memory. In the beginning was God. <laughs> and then go through the, I mean, how long would it take? 
In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and was void. And, but this is what they've done at the age of 13. When you look at Paul's credentials, he said, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. He knew the scriptures. And even he was able to testify, this is according to what was written in our scriptures by the hand of the prophets. That he was buried. Yeah, he was properly dead. He was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, another name for Peter, the apostle, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So he's like, you know what, if you don't believe me, you can go and ask them. The majority of them are still alive. This was the declaration that Paul made, regarded as one of the earliest Christian creeds. That Christ died for our sins. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day. Now when you consider the claims of Christians and the cost to them personally, we understand that this is no casual claim that can just be overlooked. And so, we're in a place where we have to read past the headline. What does this really mean? What does it really mean that Christ died for our sins? Well, surely it affirms the fact that, as Paul wrote in the book of Romans, there's none good, that all have sinned, and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us, and it doesn't matter how long ago we sinned. You know, we might say, you know, I'm, I've been all right, you know. I've had a really good year so far. I haven't sinned since last year. We understand that time don't forgive sin. You ask the Jewish war criminals, 60 years after the fact, being arrested, tried and condemned for their war crimes. You ask them if time forgives sin. Just on a human level. Time doesn't forgive sin. So despite your good year, how are you going to deal with all of your past sins as you stand before God? Let alone your present sins. Our sin has to be dealt with. It's a bit like the individual who once had a relationship with their best friend. And, you know, you hear these stories, you know, friends who steal from friends. I'm not sure how they're still classed as friends, but <laughs> friends who steal from friends. You imagine your best friend comes up in your house. When you've, you've gone to the kitchen come back to the living room, Xbox gone, <laughs> carriage 
clock that was left to you by your grand gone. Imagine the scene. Now, you imagine now that happens to you and you're going to have a party. You're not really expecting to see that person just walk through the door like everything's fine. There's, there's something to resolve here. Regardless of the fact that they were once considered a friend by you, to violate your, your, your belongings in such, and to violate your relationship in such a manner, even if you have a, some kind of forgiveness towards them, they got issues, they got, they, got, they got some heavy debts, they got some heavy bills, and you understand what they're going Even if you've got some kind of compassion where you want to have understanding towards them, you still got to address the issue, right? You can't just come up in my house and take my stuff. If you had asked me, I probably would have given it to you. But it's a violation. And yet people think, you know what, I've just sinned against God royally, casually, willingly, effortlessly. And think that God's just going to say, welcome, come in, it's not a problem. Come join the party, it's all good. Our sin has to be addressed. There's going to be a given an account of. And you see, the thing is, Romans also tells us that the payment for sin is death, meaning eternal separation from God. So that's, that's the, the predicament we have to get out of. Having been guilty of having sinned against God, we are now under the judgment of eternal death. We have broken the divine and eternal law of an eternal God. The punishment can only be eternal death. And you think, oh, that's kind of harsh, you know. It's only harsh when you don't understand how holy God is. I'm going to give you a contrasting picture. Baby born prematurely. is very unwell is in the hospital, in the incubator. The parents, the medical team, nobody can go into the room, the sanitized room in which the baby is being kept in the incubator. Actually, the only interaction that can be had with the baby is, is through gloves, through the, through the glass. Yeah, and they do whatever they're doing and everything has to be clinically sanitized because if one ounce of bacteria, one microgram of bacteria gets into that environment, it can kill that child. You wouldn't say it's extreme, it's harsh, oh, that mother can't hold her baby. You'd say, you know what, the baby's life depends on it. And so it might seem like an extreme thing to have that mother, to have that, that, those, that family unable to hold and, and to, to, you know, play with. And... But there is a very necessary reason. Because the baby's life depends on it. The Bible says that sin cannot enter the presence of God. It cannot, it can, it cannot happen. God's holiness, in contrast to the baby's life depending on it, God's holiness is such that if we were to enter into God's presence sinful, we would be exterminated. 
God is so holy. He's so pure. His purity would consume us. And so it's not even just for his glory in recognizing and honoring him that our sin has to be dealt with. Our sin has to be dealt with for our own sake. The Bible says no man can see God and live. Finished. And so what did God do? He sent his son in the form of a man. His son already existed, was at the right hand of the father. He wasn't the son because he was born in human form. He was already the son. And yet, he took on humanity and came and lived a perfect, sinless life. And you're just like, nah, that's not even possible. Well, it's possible because Jesus wasn't just a man. He was also God. He was 100% human and 100% God. And so in his humanity... He, he lived the human life. He ate. He drank. He slept. I would even dare say he passed wind. Some of you thinking, no, you can't say that about the Lord. It's blasphemy. <laughs> he lived the human life. The Bible says that he was in all points tested as we are, yet without sin. So he excused himself. Didn't offend anyone. <laughs> but he was a human, 100%. And yet he was 100% God. And having lived a sinless life, he was falsely arrested. He was tortured brutally, even to the point of death. When he was scourged, he was flogged. And yet he wasn't dead. And yet they killed him. They executed him with capital punishment. You think about the worst crimes that could be committed. You think about, you know what? I don't really agree with capital punishment, right? I don't, I don't, I don't agree with, you know, the, the government killing people. But there are certain things where I'm just like, I would, I, I would consider it under those circumstances. Well, this was one of those circumstances where Jesus was regarded as the worst criminal. The worst of the worst criminals. You know that there are certain criminals, when they go to prison, they're in fear of their own life. And you think, well, they're all criminals in there. But even criminals have a certain standard. It's like, yeah, you know, I robbed the bank. Oh, you know, I was selling drugs, da 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 But I've never done that. <laughs> and that's how Jesus was regarded. Like the, the rapist and the pedophile in the prison system. Who has to be in isolation, not because they're a threat to anyone else, but because they're in danger of their own life. When we consider the execution of Christ on the cross... This is the status that he hung under. And this is why the Jews were like, don't put on top of the cross that he's the king of the Jews. 
You imagine this heinous, disgusting, despicable criminal hanging there being declared as the king of the Jews. It didn't even make sense. It was an affront. It was an offense to them. And yet he gave up his life. And the greatest suffering wasn't really the, all the pain that he endured. It was that spiritual separation. Where for the first time, Jesus didn't call God as father. He said, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? The first time that Jesus doesn't regard God as Father. Because in that instance, he bore the brunt of the punishment for our sin. And we have to understand, you know, well, who punished him? Was it the Romans? Was it the Jews? No, they didn't punish Jesus for the sins of the world. They didn't have that authority. It was God, the Father, who punished Jesus. In Isaiah 53, we're told that actually it pleased the Lord. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased the Lord to smite him, to strike him down. You see, when we stand to give an account for our sin, we're going to stand before the Holy God. And it's him who is in need of satisfying. And yet, in that moment, when Jesus' status was declared sinful, not for his own sake, not because of his own fault, but because of your sin and my sin, there was a separation from the Father. And he died. And he was buried. And having been buried, on the third day, he didn't just revive and was resuscitated from, a, 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 you know, having fainted. He didn't just decide having faked his death, as some would claim, which in and of itself, you'd like, he's going to fake a Roman putting a spear through his side. He's going to fake people putting nails through him. That doesn't even make sense. He didn't just work his way out of the grave clothes, leaving them neatly intact. He didn't roll away this two-ton tombstone from the mouth of the, the cave by himself and pretend that he was back from the dead. He wasn't body snatched by his followers who would have had to have got past this 16-man Roman guard and rolled the, the stone away and snatched his body away. Even if the whole guard unit were asleep, are they going to leave the grave closed? They're going to actually take time to unwrap him. Let's unwrap him. <laughs> Without fearing that the Romans are going to wake up and kill them in there for having broken Pilate's seal. 
See, there's no other explanation that makes sense. God raised Christ from the dead. In Romans it says this. This is the Apostle Paul speaking in chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised, God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. He was a real man. He had a heritage. He had a family tree. And was declared to be the son of God in power. Declared to be the son of God in power. According to the spirit of holiness. And how was this? By his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. What are you going to do with this reality? There was a man 2,000 years ago who lived in Israel. And the record, the historic record of this man is that he lived as a good man. In fact, those who followed him and even gave their lives to consent to their claim believed that he is Lord that he lived a miraculous life. He preached the kingdom of God. He was crucified, having been tortured. And after three days, he was raised. You see, this changes everything. As I said at the beginning, there's no middle ground. There's no fence to sit on. This is true. Jesus is the Lord God revealed among us. And if that's true, then his words have to be heeded. John chapter 3 verse 16, probably the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And so you have a choice as to where you're going to put your faith. Are you going to put your faith in science? Are you going to put your faith in hearsay? Are you going to put your faith in yourself and your own ideas? You know that it's a hazardous thing to even just trust our own knowledge. How many times have you found yourself in a situation where you thought you knew something and you really didn't? And you got exposed afterwards. And you were convinced. Even to trust ourselves is a hazardous thing. But we're not called to trust even in ourselves. We're not called to have faith in faith. I believe it, I believe it, I believe it, I believe it, I believe it. It's true! It don't work like that. We're called to believe on someone who is outside of ourselves. It's what is known as an objective reality. 
that is open to be scrutinized and evaluated by all. It's not just an idea or a concept. It's a person. And so it's one thing to accept these facts and believe that Jesus lived and died. And it's another thing to believe in, to put your trust in Christ. It's not enough to believe that Jesus lived and died. The call is to put your trust in Jesus as the only means of salvation. The only way that anyone can be right with God. The same Apostle Paul says this, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. See, it was absolutely clear and sure, a certainty that Christ has been raised from the dead. And if you put your trust in him and you repent, and that basically means admit that you're guilty before God and commit yourself to follow Christ, you'll be forgiven of all your sin. Every sin that has ever been committed, even those things that you don't even tell your closest friends, those things that you don't even want to verbalize to yourself, lest you're overheard. The wickedest thoughts of your heart, the worst things you've ever done, God will forgive you and wipe your slate clean. And not only that, he will give you a new life. Ah, this is the amazing promise. Listen to how it's worded. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead, notice it, Reiterate it again, you know. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You see, God isn't just concerned about life after death. God's made provision for the life before death even now. And this is what is extended to you today. Do you believe it? Will you accept the facts? If a doctor comes to you and says, you know what? You've got six months to live at best. You need to change your lifestyle if you want to have any hope. You can walk out of there and say, you know what? I feel fine. I don't even know what the doctor's talking Maybe he's got someone else's notes. I mean, I had a little bit of a sore back today, but I'm all right. That's madness. I'm not even going to listen to it. You can do that. And there are those who have done and died. See, this information isn't just for the sake of information. Our eternal destiny hangs in the balance. What say you? Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. He's risen indeed. 
I'm going to ask the team to come back. Having been risen from the grave, we have the promise of new life. God will remember your lawless deeds no more. Every violation of his commandments, every bad intention will be forgiven. And we have this assurance when Jesus was nailed to the cross, he cried, it is finished. That was equivalent to him declaring that the payment for the penalty of your sin was paid in full. Fully, your account, the debt was fully settled. And yet when God raised him from the dead, he affirmed payment received. It was like the clearing of the check. You know, you're paying a check and you're kind of waiting. Is, is this really, is, like, is this person really good for this? Is this going to bounce? Because I know they ain't got no money. And you're waiting. Is this too good to be true? Is this money really going to go into my account? And you get that confirmation. The check's cleared. Payment's cleared. The payment for your sin, for the penalty of your sin has, has been made. And you have the assurance that it's been received by the fact that God raised Christ from the dead, paid in full. Will you now trust God and receive the benefit of that? Will you trust in Christ? Let's stand. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.